0: Marco Guerrero is an assistant professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Chicago. He earned his PhD from the University of Michigan Ann Arbor in 2013, his master's degree from the University of Notre Dame in 2002, and his bachelor's degree from Harvard University in 2000. His work is focused on the relationship between the urban poor and the middle class in Manila, as located in slums and upper and middle class enclaves. His project has been to connect this relationship with urban structures on the one hand and the political dissenters on the other. In the process, he highlights the role of class in shaping urban space, social life and politics. On this episode, we discuss his book, Manila, the Patchwork City, which discusses the city in context of these class relations. Hi Marco and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And uh, yeah, so I think, you know, before we get into the interview itself, I'd just like to ask you a little bit about yourself, about your academic background and about your interest in, in urban sociology, especially and Manila as an area of research.
1: Sure Abha, I'm happy to be here. I'm an associate professor of sociology at the University of Chicago. I did my graduate work at the University of Michigan before grad school, I worked in the Philippines for for a few years. I did some freelance journalism. I worked for some NGOs having to do with land reform. And it was really during that period that I became interested in the Philippines, but also what I suppose you might call development issues broadly, having to do with land reform, having to do with politics, having to do with democracy. In fact, the book is really about what we might call a social movement that I witnessed myself, you know, a decade before during my time in the Philippines, and it stayed with me. It was um, it was called Ezatres. It was a, a demonstration composed mainly of poor people in support of a populist president. His name was Joseph Estrada. He had just been deposed um, months before by a largely middle class demonstration, and there was a much larger demonstration. This Ezatres of poor people clamoring for his return. Um, It culminated in a march to the presidential palace. And then these demonstrators were dispersed, often violently, by the police and military. Anyhow, I I happened to see this while I was in Manila during those years. And it struck me, it struck me how people talked about the demonstrators as people who don't know any better, as, as dirty, as criminals. Um, There was such a strong sentiment that they had no right to participate in politics. There was also a lot of resentment about the fact that they could vote. (laughs) And that oftentimes oftentimes, um, my middle class aunts and uncles, they would watch what was happening on TV and just shake their head and and, uh, lament the state of politics and democracy in the country. Because it allowed this rabble to have a say um, when from their point of view, they were unfit to say anything. So anyhow, that, that remained with me. And in some ways I entered graduate school, not because I, I wanted to become a professor, but because there are all these things that I, I wanted to study more and learn more and that I didn't see reflected in the literature, um, at least at the time. And so really that's why I went into graduate school and I ended up in sociology. Again, a bit serendipitously I applied to many programs, but that somehow landed in a sociology one. But then I embraced it and I used it as an opportunity really go back to the Philippines and spend a lot of time doing more systematic field work. And so for the book, I talked to people who lived in um, slums or informal settlements, but also to the middle class who talked to, uh, who lived in these gated subdivisions or condominiums. And what struck me was that these settlements, both the, the enclaves, the middle class enclaves and the poor slums were often very close to each other, sometimes right beside each other, sometimes the... Uh, the subdivision was so big that part of it had been converted into a slum. It, it was just these incredible formations of proximity. Um, and so really, that's, that's really the seed of the book, just marveling at um, this urban configuration. So I started off really as asking a political question. I wanted to know why the poor supported this populist president. While the middle class hated him, what accounted for the fact that these two groups of people, both residents of the same city, often neighbors, saw politics in very, very different ways. And that led me to start paying attention to the way these groups were segregated. But it was a segregation that was characterized not by distance. You know, in the United States, when people talk about segregation, they often refer to neighborhoods that are isolated and usually far away from the mainstream. Um, but this was not the case in Manila. It was slum areas were dispersed throughout the city. Um, in fact, half the city residents lived in these informal settlements and they were often close close to more formalized and much more valorized kinds of housing subdivisions condominiums malls even entire centers bundling together recreational commercial uh, you know different kinds of functions and so it struck me that perhaps to make sense of this very divided politics i needed to pay more attention to how the city had changed over the years, how it had become more sharply divided, but it was a division characterized by proximity. And so that was, that's really where the book, that's really the focus of the book and because it just, this process just fascinated me uh, during the years before graduate school.
0: Definitely. Right. You know, I think um, something that I think I would especially like to inquire a little bit more into is the title of the book itself, because, okay. you know, I think if you look at the term, you know, that you've used, right, you know, like you haven't really like described the city as the melting pot, like any such thing, you know, I think if you look at the term, you know, like patchwork in itself, right, like, um, you know, there are a lot of differences, but on the other hand, there are also a lot of things in common. So I was wondering if you found are similarities um, in terms of like the population itself and how exactly a lot of like these dynamics mm-hmm.
1: Uh, sure. So I used I used the the word patchwork to describe Manila, precisely because clearly it was a city that was marked by segregation, but it was a segregation of different spaces and really different social worlds that were close to each other, like a patchwork. Um, and so there was interaction for sure between people within these spaces. After all. Uh, the people who worked in the subdivisions in the condominiums often lived in the informal settlements across the street or nearby. Uh, these were their uh, mates, uh, carpenters, gardeners, cooks, drivers, and, and so on. There were various kinds of interactions, too, in the context of, say, religion. A church might include in its parish both the members of a slum and the members of a subdivision at the same time various kinds of local government organizations. Their boundaries of the, of the local neighborhoods, they're called barangays the Philippines, oftentimes included members of the different spatial formations. So it led to all, all kinds of very interesting interactions. So you're right insofar as a patchwork suggests boundaries between places, but I also mean to suggest that because of their proximity, there was a great deal of interaction um, between these spaces. And so in the book, I talk about how how the character of that interaction is really what's significant. You now, sometimes people assume that just because there's interaction, people build bridges and they end up getting along, right? So a lot of the integration literature in the United States, for instance, suggests that what you need to do is to put people in proximity. The idea being that if you put, say, different racial groups in proximity, they'll build friendships. They'll get to know each other and the, the racial animus will somehow subside Well, in the context of the Philippines, there was proximity and there was interaction, but it was a very hierarchical and unequal interaction for the most part. So certainly true, this is certainly true when it came to work relationships, but also, you know, social, local government, church. There was a sense in which people who came from the slums, so-called squatters in the context of Manila were looked down upon were still seen as dirty, as criminals as thieves. This followed them like a stigma. You know, the fact that they lived in these places followed them like a stain um, and shaped the character of their interactions, even in, even in settings that were supposed to be non-hierarchical. Um, and so in any case, it's precisely this interactions, despite the patchwork quality of the city, that resulted in what I call in the book, a growing sense of class consciousness on both sides, a sharpening divide that extended politically when it came to this figure of Estrada, uh, Joseph Estrada, the populist president. You know, people who went to church together, who were part of the same neighborhood organization, who worked as servants for, for other people. They looked at this one person and they saw different things. The middle class saw a despicable person, a corrupt Person. and that's why they demonstrated to dislodge him. The poor looked at him and they saw a kind of savior, somebody who listened to them, who made them feel seen. And so in the book, I, I talk about how part of Estrada's appeal had to do with the fact that he made, them, made the poor feel seen, he made them feel recognized. And that mattered so much because of how, in their everyday lives, they were often invisible or mistreated or, or discriminated against. Um, So, yes, so I make connections between the patchwork quality of the city and quality of interactions, and then ultimately to the way they thought about politics.
0: Definitely, right? You know, I think um, a lot of what you've described also reminds me of the patterns that you see in a lot of developing countries around the world, right? And I think, you know, now especially there is growing talk around diversity and how, you know, I think if you have a heterogeneous society, you have so many different views, and I think it is, in fact, essential for a healthy democracy, right? But then, you know, I think, on the other hand, you've also mentioned a lot about how the political structure itself is so fraught with all of like, these contradictions, right? I think I'd just like to know a little bit more as to, you know, how um, a lot of, of like the politics essentially plays out and how these differences, you know, in that sense, are not really reflected in like, the best way it can be in like, a democracy uh, like the Philippines.
1: Sure. You know, it was exciting to write a book about politics in Manila, because I think, for, well, first of all, it's not well represented in the American literature, anyway, the American sociological literature. Um, it's not just Manila, it's also Latin America, it's also um, India, and um, a place like Manila, I think, it's not exactly like places in other parts of the developing world, but it's closer, certainly, than, than looking at American the American literature and descriptions of politics in the United States or Europe. So it is exciting to write about a part of the world and have people, not necessarily from the Philippines, but say from India or Brazil say, that looks familiar to me. That's how politics works in our country too. To be part of an increasing globalization, maybe you might say of American sociology was was nice. With respect to politics, I mean, here's one way in which it it was different. So I, I talked about the poor responding to Estrada and, and the puzzle for me was, you now here's a guy who was corrupt. <laughs> there's, no, there's no question about it, he was corrupt. There's a guy who wasn't a very good president. Moreover, this is a guy who didn't do very much for the poor. In fact, his, both his predecessor and his successor did much more for the poor than Joseph Estrada did. And yet he was the popular one. He was the one they loved. They despised his predecessor, his successor. They had mixed feelings about his predecessor, but Estrada, because of his populist appeal, um, really commanded the vote of the poor, and I sought to understand why. Somebody who's, who really hasn't improved their lives, at least materially, if you look at all the indications, health, um, access to education, to services, these all declined during Estrada's term, right? So, so why was he the one who they were devoted to? It took me a while to understand this. It it really took me understanding their interactions with other people, particularly with middle class people on a daily basis to understand why Estrada's appeal was so strong. But as I said, I came to see that stigma, discrimination was such a central part of their lives. They were used to being made to feel as if they were dirty, ugly, criminal, discounted in various kinds of ways. And what Estrada did was that he paid attention to them. And so he'd walk into slums, not much of an entourage. He'd hug them, he'd touch them. He'd eat with her hands, he'd eat with his hands. They would remember this. And so they would talk about, they would tell me stories of Estrada did this, Estrada did that. And I, at first I couldn't understand why were they so fixated on um, Estrada hugging them or eating with his hands or looking some, a certain way. Um, Why did they remember it after several years? I I came to understand that what Estrada represented to them was the prospect of being treated equally. And so when he said, I stand for the poor, they believed him. They believed him because, because of how he conducted himself. Now, to be clear, in the Philippines, just like I'm sure in India and Brazil and elsewhere, a lot of politicians say, I'm for the poor. A lot of politicians say, you know, vote for me and I'll take care of you. And so the poor had to develop a kind of savviness. They had to develop a way to to sense who's who's genuine here, who's sincere here and who's not. And and so, you know, both I mentioned Estrada's successor, Gloria Arroyo, she did more for the poor than Estrada did by a lot, as I said. And she also claimed to stand for the poor, but they hated her. And it's partly because she didn't come off as sincere in the way Estrada did. And so I sought to really understand the secret of sincerity. And as I said, it had to do with the way he conducted himself towards them. It wasn't, um, it felt genuine to them. Now, whether, whether it was or not, it's, it's hard to look into the man's heart, but the point is that political performance matters. They they looked at his performance and they judged him to be sincere because they said, Look at the way he walks in without much of an entourage. Look at the way that he remembers us on his birthday. He sends groceries to this slum or that slum. Look at the way he just hugged me without hesitating. Whereas that other person, that other politician, sure, they took my hand, but you could see them pull away a little bit. You could see in their face discomfort. They would talk about these things, and it was fascinating because what they were really talking about was are these people treating me like a human being or not? And on this basis, they decided, I can believe it when this person says, I, I stand for the poor. And, and so I think this is particular to developing countries in particular with large numbers of poor people and with a civilizational divide, you know, insofar as the poor are seen as less than by a number of the middle class, a civilizational divide that, that, that structures politics and particularly democracy. In, in a very in a very um, particular way. I mean democracy in, this play, in these places is often regarded with ambivalence, at least by the middle class. I know for sure that my middle class informants in the Philippines you know, they're happy to be, they're happy to have have a vote, but they're uneasy about the fact that the poor can vote. In particular, the poor can vote in larger numbers than they can and that in effect they can be overruled. Um, and they can vote people like Estrada to power. They feel profoundly uneasy about that and and that colors their their assessment of democracy. And so so I I happen to think that it's precisely this ambivalence, this unease with democracy that has led to somebody like the current president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte coming into power. Um, and his strongman appeal, his promises to discipline democracy through, through um, by punishing, you know, offenders of various kinds. I mean, this kind of appeal really appeals to the middle class, who have, for a long time seen democracy as undisciplined, as disorderly, and in no small part because of the poor, particularly the urban poor and informal settlers, but also because of the elites who, who in their view, is corrupt. What I'm saying is that this is a kind of politics that needs to be described on its own terms. You can't simply take models of politics concocted in the United States and read them backwards into a country like the Philippines or a country like India or a country like Brazil. You need to describe them, you need to embed them in history and describe describe the politics for what it is and understand even what a term like democracy means in these places, what it means to different people is different from what it means to Americans
0: absolutely right you know I think uh, that's the thing with the stratified society you know as the name itself suggests is that you know there are so many layers right like there are so many strata and you know I think um, in that sense of course to be you know a middle class person or to be you know someone from uh, you know the more like distressed classes of society you know like so to speak I think to reach you know a person in power becomes all the more harder right and I know that in like the case of India, at least, right, like we have the media who like for a very long time has sort of been that conduit between the government and between the people. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd just like to hear a little bit, you know, ask like what exactly like that conduit looks like in the Philippines and, you know, where exactly the flaws are in reaching, the people are like reaching the government, how exactly it, it pans out.
1: Sure. There's quite a story there. I mean, the media is quite, um, or at least it used to be quite lively. I mean, there are a lot of media sources. I mean, it's changed a bit now because of Duterte, the current president. Uh, He's really clamped down on the media. He's cowed a number of media organizations. But before that, it was a very lively scene. You have different kinds of um, newspapers and, of course, broadcast, and it's mixed with celebrities. Um, So, you know, there's a kind of carnival atmosphere with the media. Now, with respect to my study, um, what was significant was that the demonstration that led to Estrada's ouster, it was called Edzegos, it was widely covered in the media. In fact, it was praised. There were celebrities interviewed, uh, politicians, bishops of all kinds. I mean, it was nonstop coverage. And so the media, that, that event was really celebrated. The poor demonstration in support of Estrada that happened months later was almost completely ignored media even though it was bigger <laughs> it was much bigger but but uh, media outlets would refuse to cover it they, they they didn't want to to feature this these people these kinds of events and so in a way the fact that it wasn't covered only ended up angering the poor more they would say how come you cover this event you know with beautiful people you know well-dressed people who go to that are most elite schools but with us you know, it, it's barely a mention, and there's much more of us. And so that became a real issue among the poor. Um, so one channel did cover it, and that was the channel that was partisan to Estrada. Um, and so that's the channel that people ended up watching, even though for the most part, you know, aside from that event, it just broadcast mainly religious programming. But because it was the one channel that covered it, as it does, that's how people got their news, because the major broadcasters at least at the beginning of its address, refused to cover the demonstration. And so the media, you're right, is a central player and it can actually play a significant role in fanning the flames of political discontent, political antagonism. This is how people get their news, right? And as I said, it's also also a bit different from, from the media in the United States. There's much more of a mix, at least in the Philippines, with a kind of celebrity, you, know, you have celebrities commenting on things or, or local politicians, um, so to be there it's certainly exciting but, but it, 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 it's hard to explain to people who don't know, there's a lot of explaining to do to people who don't know these settings, who have in mind say the American context or the European context, so oftentimes when I talk about the Philippines, And when I'm not talking to say somebody from India or somebody from Latin America, I often feel misunderstood because they ask questions that reveal that they have a different model in their head. They ask about what's the, about political parties and how political parties go. And I have to explain to them that in the Philippines there are parties, but um, personalities really drive, really drive politics. And so there's a lot of translation work that needs to happen. And so in general, as I said, sociology as a discipline should turn towards the rest of the world, not just to understand, um, you know, local conditions, but to to get insight into theory, into urban theory, political theory. We can't simply rely on models that were made, you know, with Chicago, uh, you know, in mind. We need to look at, Manila, we need to look at Mumbai, we need to look at Sao Paulo.
0: Absolutely right. I think I couldn't agree more because like a lot of what you've described really reminds me of Mumbai as a city, right? Like where you've got these slums that are like in the city and, you know, and like at the same time, you have like these hyper rich people as well. And they live literally side by side, right? Like it's, it's quite bizarre to believe, but I mean, it's a very like uh, stark reality, I think, in that sense.
1: Natural. It's just your experience of the city, right? So even there, even just what it feels like to be urban, in these cities is very different. Right now I'm in Chicago uh, and so much of urban sociology is built around Chicago because this was the city in which, you know, you know, urban theorists back in the early 20th century, they'd look at the city and they'd come up with their ideas about what a city was supposed to be like, what it was supposed to feel like. But that's not what it feels like in Manila. And I doubt that's what it feels like in Mumbai. And so we need new accounts, new descriptions of the urban experience, but also of politics.
0: For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think something else I'd like to go back to, right, is that whenever we speak about aggressions towards the poor or like the distress sort of, you know, like classes of society, then I think there are like two broad ways to look at it, right? Like you can look at it in terms of the macro structures and how a lot of like the democracies and, you know, and like the larger sort of structures don't really cater to them. And then I think on the other hand, you have the microaggressions, which are the day-to-day sort of stresses that are there. So I'd just like to know a little bit, ask your thoughts, how exactly like these two structures really interact to create the urban experience, especially, you know, in terms of like the poor where their voices are not really like heard in, in society.
1: And that's a wonderful question, Abra. In fact, my, my ambition in the book was to link the two things, to link the experience, the felt on the ground experience of class relationships with the much more structural perspective of what's happening, not just in the city, but globally to the country and and also globally. And so, as I discussed, I talk a lot as an ethnographer, I I observe these things and I end up talking a lot in the book about what it feels like to be poor, what it feels like to be a squatter, what it feels like to interact with somebody and have them recoil, to have them, you know, take your hand reluctantly and then to immediately reach for hand sanitizer or alcohol to wash their hands indicating to you how dirty you are in their eyes how painful that is how stigmatizing it is i start there and then i i, I tell a story that i hope links it links those feelings to their political views their political preferences for instance it also links that story to how manila as a city has changed and because of economic growth in the past 10, 15 years, it's led on the one hand to these um, ex- increasingly exclusive spaces, these enclaves um, where the new middle-class essentially can interact among themselves, away from the public city, away from the poor. I mean, that's a much larger a larger story. You have to pay attention there to the economic to economic restructuring, to flows of capital in the transformation of the city. And then to a city that has become a kind of patchwork where you have poor poor settlements right next to rich settlements. And that's no accident. That's because you need those people to construct your condominiums, your subdivisions. You need those people to work these things as your maids. And so of course those people have to be there but they're denied a place in the city and they're treated terribly. And so what does that mean for politics is the question. So without looking at interpersonal interactions on the ground, I don't think I could have convinced myself or convinced anybody that in fact, these two things are linked, what's happening at the city level, what's happening globally, what's happening nationally, and what's happening when one person in a settlement, in a poor settlement interacts with another person in an enclave, how significant that is and how that leads to, that has clear political repercussions. That means when a guy like Joseph Estrada comes along, who claims to to speak for the poor, who treats people, these people feel as if they're treated equally, something happens, they feel something, they, they resonate, you know, his, his, his populist appeals resonate with them, something is unleashed, and it creates this unprecedented demonstration of millions of poor people marching to the presidential palace. So, I, in other words, I'm saying I don't think I could have told the, say, the social movement story or the, or, or the, the larger um, urban story without really understanding what it felt like to be a squatter, what it felt like to be treated a certain way. And so, so those two levels, which are often distinguished in the scholarship, they have to be woven together into a story. That's the only way we as human beings can really understand why people see the world they do in the way they do, in a way that may be different from us. But once you begin to understand, oh, it's because ordinarily they experience so much pain in, in these kinds of interactions, that when politics comes around, um, they end up, gravitating towards this candidate. And by the way, you know, of course, this analysis was constructed in the context of the Philippines. But while I was writing about the Philippines, the United States elected Donald Trump. <laughs> and, it, 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 and bizarrely, I started to hear things that I had only heard in the Philippines in the United States among my colleagues. People would say, I can't believe those people are voting for a guy like him. Are they stupid? Are they... It it struck me because this is exactly how the middle class in the Philippines talked about the poor. How could they vote for that guy? Don't they know any better? What's wrong with him? So it's funny in a way because I mean here's an instance of doing theory in the context of the developing country. Having it really make sense of something at the very center of theoretical production in the United States.
0: For sure, yeah. And, you know, I think something, uh, you know, that you mentioned that really struck me, right, is that, you know, I think the reason that you have the super rich and like the super poor, right, beside each other is because, you know, I think like the poor, right, or like the middle class, especially, right, are so integral to the functioning of the city, right, that nobody about that much right in fact i just remember i was listening um like a podcast the other day right that spoke a little bit about the slum of dharavi in in mumbai which i think is one of asia's i think it's asia's like second largest slum and there's a really interesting statistic which is that apparently uh around 90 percent of the city's waste actually gets recycled in dharavi itself so if it wasn't for the slum like the city itself would be completely you know on in like a horrible shape right uh so yeah you know i think i just like to know a little bit as to how exactly, you know, who are like the middle class in that sense, you know, are so integral to Manila as a city, like the fiber of the city and day-to-day functioning uh, in that sense.
1: Oh, that's absolutely right. So it's, it's only surprising because we tend to, um, in our heads, we tend to assume that these settlements are, are deviant in some way or abnormal. But then when you step back and realize first that a lot of the city's residents, if not the majority, live in these kind of settlements, you begin to question, why, why have I assumed their abnormality? when, in fact, this is, this is clearly a normal way of urban living. But it's also, there are also functional reasons we have slums, as you pointed out. These are where workers are, recyclers are. They, these areas, a large one like Daravi, you know, large ones in the Philippines, like San Roque and others, they have their own mini economies. Um, They have their own economies of scale. They they have their own markets. You know, you can buy food there. You can buy um, cigarettes by the piece or or shampoo by the sachet. I mean, it's very different from going to a supermarket. Uh, You can buy clothes there. There are vendors everywhere, right? They're extremely lively. You know, they're neighborhoods where where, where people interact. There's a sense of community, sometimes much greater. a sense of community and subdivisions and condominiums uh, there's no question that this is as much the city as anywhere else um, but it often doesn't get treated as such which again gets to this discounting of not just these types of spaces but the residents as well but it's, it's hard to imagine the construction of these gated communities the subdivisions these condominiums these, you know, these posh areas with nightclubs and golf you know golf courses without construction workers without people to work them but where do those people live if the city has become so expensive precisely because of those spaces that they can't afford formal title to land now they can either commute right but oftentimes at least in manila that's a three four hour commute one way and that the cost of commuting becomes prohibitive and so you really have no choice you're searching for a livelihood, the jobs are in the city, but the situation in the city is is just that it's too expensive to live. And that's why we have informal settlements. It makes absolute sense economically. Socially, it's integrated absolutely with with the rest of the city. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that the residents of, these informal settlements and the residents of the subdivisions see each other as equals, that they get along. They need each other, no question. But as you know, oftentimes these interactions are very much fraught, they're very unequal, they're stigmatized. And so I think this has become increasingly a condition of, of these gigantic cities of, in Asia and elsewhere, you know, in South Asia and Southeast Asia and Latin America also, parts of Africa. And so we need to pay more attention. To it. We need to study it. And as I said, we need to describe these relationships in their own terms, we need a new urban sociology focused on the global south.
0: True, yeah. Yeah, I think you know, something I'm also a little bit more curious about is these interpersonal sort of interactions, right? Especially, you know, when you look at cross-class interactions. Because I think while on a surface level, it is in fact glaringly obvious right that two different classes really need each other for like the city to function and thrive effectively but i think at the same time like as you've mentioned there are these, these associations of the poor with you know being deviant or like criminals right you know in in that sense So i just like to know a little bit as like historically right like what exactly has been the context behind this and how has that been like passed on like through the years and so, like why do these ideas and perceptions like still exist today
1: Sure, well, you know, as the city grew, really in the mid 20th century, a city like Manila, but also cities elsewhere in India and elsewhere, they really just exploded in population. And you had a lot of uh, migrants from rural areas pouring into the city. And they often settled where they could settle. And they had to to create informal settlements. These weren't formalized necessarily with title. And around these settlements, there was a lively, um, sense of community there was a, an organizational infrastructure people had to people had to organize to get things done to build things to lend each other money microfinance for food maybe it's religious maybe it's an ethnic group and so these areas in informal settlements a very dense organization which is a lot of organizations doing very very different kinds of things um, and with that came a strong sense of place a, a strong sense of community Now, over time, some people moved out, more people moved in. But what we're noticing in in cities like Manila is that, you know, for a while, informal settlements were regarded as transitory. They're a a kind of way station between quote unquote modern urban life. People would get titled, they'd find a formal plot of land. And to some extent that did happen. But what we're seeing now is that a lot of these settlements became entrenched. And part of the answer is because of politics, at least in a, a democracy like the Philippines, where electorally, Politicians recognized the residents of these settlements. They cultivated them. They they cultivated connections with them precisely because this was a group of voters. And they realized that the key to office was political. These informal settlements were dense with people. And so if you could cultivate a relationship, a clientelist relationship, a patronage relationship with this slum or that slum, you're all but insured election. So so part of it is political. I mean, I think these places were also uh, cultivated by by politicians in electoral democracies like like the Philippines. In any case, the reality is that since the mid-20th century, these these informal settlements have grown. They've become entrenched. They've become a normal part of the city. And the situation today is such that land values in much of the city are just too expensive for people to even consider formalization. Again, they're in the city because that's where the jobs are. Um, I mean, that's where you can be a construction worker, a driver, or a maid, or a gardener, or or whatever. Um, But how can you afford a plot of land that's not at the very peripheries? How can you afford a plot of land near, relatively near, where you work? You know, near the subdivision that you're helping build, or near the house that you're a maid for? You can't. You can't. And so these informal settlements become places where workers can stay. Like I said, once you understand that, you realize they have to be there. The city can't function without them. And at the same time, the perception has persisted that they're somehow abnormal, that they shouldn't be there and that the residents are somehow interlopers, people who have encroached upon land, people who have no respect for private property. And that informs how they treat them oftentimes.
0: Very true, yeah. And in fact, you know, I think a couple of points that you've mentioned sort of take me back to a critical theory class, in fact, that I once did in sociology, right, where we were studying about how, so even though this example is a Western one, right, which is in, during the Industrial like Revolution, right, when London was really emerging and you had a lot of these markets come up, then other places, right, like in and around the city, like a lot of these suburbs, a lot of like these towns and villages, Right. Like conditions there were just, you know, essentially made inhospitable. Right. Like there were no job opportunities and all of that there, which essentially caused people to, you know, move to the city. And, you know, and like the city itself was such a mess because you had so many people and, you know, like crowding and all of that. Right. But you know, I think that sort of raises the fundamental question of why have conditions been made inhospitable in the first place, right? Like, why is it that people have had to make these migrations, and like, why exactly, you know, have people had to like move from like their hometowns where like their families have been living for so long, right? Uh, so yeah, I just like to hear like your thoughts on on that question.
1: No, it's a good question. I think the answer to that question, for that for the answer, you have to look at what's happening in the countryside, in rural areas, and so it, you know, it's complicated. But one reason is simply demographic, demographic pressure. And so the populations are growing. And so there's not enough land for people to farm. And so they're forced to find work in the city, but that's not it. That, that's, not only, that's not the only reason, the other, there are other reasons. The city becomes a, a way to get money, to get wages. Now, if you're a farmer and you're a subsistence farmer and have been for generations, all of a sudden you find that to be competitive as a farmer, you need to pay for various kinds of farm inputs. Fertilizer, for instance, you need to learn how to irrigate. Those things cost money. Now, before, perhaps, you could do with very little money, but now you need money, particularly from wages. Where do you get wages? You know, And oftentimes, you have to go to this. this families, as a part of their household strategies, have to send people to the city to make money and to send it home, to, to remit, essentially. Um, there's also the fact that the commercialization of farming has left a lot of farmers landless. Um, and again, where do they go? The city becomes a kind of refuge for these people. It became, becomes a way to catch people who are becoming increasingly impoverished in the countryside. Um, that's where the jobs are. That's where industry is. And as industrialization starts to happen in the 20th century in places like India and the Philippines, they need workers. And again, that pulls people from the city. And so I'm saying that there's a combination of both push and pull factors that result in these cities like Mumbai, like Manila, just growing beyond all proportion, beyond the imagination of anything that's happened in the West. And at the same time, the lack of sufficient governance, sufficient infrastructure, sufficient services, leave people having to fend for themselves. And so they build their own settlements out of whatever material they're able to get. And this is self-help housing ultimately. And it has to do with the fact that there is no state there to build public housing for them or at least you know maybe it can do so in small amounts but certainly not enough to capture the huge stream of people who are pouring into the city so right i mean this is the great story of countries like ours philippines india latin america now africa um, the story of modernization if you want to use that word is a story of of urbanization, sometimes called over-urbanization. It's a story that leads to the creation of these humongous cities that look like Manila, that have a patchwork kind of quality, that have rich and poor having to live side by side. It's not just one place, it's many places in the developing world, it's a particular trajectory. Um, And so we need to see it for what it is if we want to do something about it.
0: Definitely, yeah. And, you know, I mean, even though it is, uh, you know, something that I think, like, if you look at the course of human history, it happened like relatively recently, but, you know, I think like over like generations, right, I think you've sort of seen how a lot of these families have really, you know, lived in cities and made their home, you know, I think in that sense. And, you know, I think, um, like, especially looking at India, you know, as an example, I think are, you know, in, in some ways, even though a lot of these divides still exist, I think you still have certain tools per se that, you know, I think make society a little bit, less unequal you know i think like one of the biggest examples of this is when mobile phones came to india right i think you know initially of course it was expensive but now it's like every second or more or less like every person you know has a mobile phone right and this is um, a smartphone right so you know i think everybody uses like whatsapp and like google pay and all of that so i think in that sense it does create a sense of, of homogenization and um and although, of course, you know, like a lot of like these divides still like, exist, I think if you still have these things, it shows you how a lot, a lot of like these standards of living have also raised. So, yes, yeah, so my question is just, you know, if, if like whether or not a lot of like these patterns have also been, you know, like repeated in like Manila as well. Um, yeah.
1: Oh, it's a really good point, Abba. You know, so far I've emphasized divides and I've, I've emphasized different social worlds. But you're also right, not just proximity, but as you pointed out, technology in the form of mobile phones for instance in some ways work across purposes sometimes they give people um, a broader sense of identity look they don't they're not only classed they don't only have a class identity they don't only have ethnic identities or religious identities they have broader kinds of identities youth culture perhaps uh, a national identity, regional identities, so on and so forth. So there's a swirl of identities that depending on the situation, some become more prominent versus others. And so it's true, I have emphasized class because that's the story in my book, but, but certainly I don't mean to, um, to occlude or obscure these other kinds of identities that may come into play. I mean, mobile phones is a good one. It enables uh, you know through WhatsApp and through other, through other kinds of apps, you can talk with people and not even know their class background. So perhaps that's liberating in in an extent. It allows you to say, share your fandom of a certain artist or to like the same music. And maybe maybe these become ways to feel like, like you're part of the same world, but there are also other forces that make us feel like we're part of different worlds. And so all these things go together, right? And they exercise different pressures depending on the situation, but you're right it's an important point to say that it's not so simple as um it's one group versus another it really depends on the situation what kind of identity um will be called up whether it's oh i'm a fan of this tv show or this soap opera or this music group or this kind of music or i feel like i'm a squatter and and this person makes me feel like i'm i'm not human, right so it really depends on the kind of situation but we're, we're were a compound of all those different things They're wrestling with each other. And so hopefully, you know, even proximity, I, I talked about unequal interaction, but it's quite possible that proximity gives people the opportunity to show real human kindness. And so there are a number of stories in my research where people with more means, people who lived in the subdivision, genuinely helped people who, who they saw as unfortunate not necessarily in a condescending way, not necessarily in a way that made, them, made the other party feel less than, but because they wanted to help out of a genuine desire to help. And so they would um, pay for the, the schooling of kids from another family, right? Or they would, they would give them donations or they would help them out. There are ways in which this could be done. And so I, I certainly don't mean to say that people are only only have class identities; they also have broadly human identities, um, and these things can be forces that bring us together.
0: Very much so, yeah. You know, I think um, it also sort of, um, you know, like if we look at it in more technical terms, right? Like I think we call it qualitative data, but I think it essentially is stories, right? Because behind all of those numbers and statistics are real people, you know, who are really living these lives. And yeah, I think it's, you know, equally important, if not even more important to really understand, you know, like what the lived realities are. And yeah, you know, I think um, like a final sort of question I'd like to wrap up with, you know, I think like in connection to that is that like the natural sciences and and the human sciences are so different because, you know, we're not studying molecules in a lab. We're studying real people. Right. And we essentially are also a part of these structures, you know, I think in a lot of ways. Uh, so yeah, I'd just like to know if you have ever felt that your background or identity or experiences has influenced the course of your research, either in terms of your access to resources or your form of narration or any other ways that you might, might find.
1: Well, that's a great question. And the answer, in short, is that it absolutely has, both in ways that I can recognize and in ways that I can't recognize. And I'll, I'll, I'll freely admit that. Um, look, you know, I, I, I was born in the Philippines. I grew up there. Um, but then I moved to the United States. And so in in a way I'm familiar with both worlds, but it's also the case that I'm not from a slum background and I'm asking people who live there questions about their life. And so that can work in both ways. I mean, clearly the way they see me is somebody who comes from the outside, somebody who's not like them. And so that can be useful, that can be revealing and I'll illustrate how, you know, for instance, on the subject of people feeling stigmatized in slum areas a woman was once this woman who lived in an informal settlement was describing to me how people in the subdivision nearby would make her feel would treat her and and she said and she said when when they touched me they would recoil as if i were dirty and so as she said that she reached for my hand and she just held it as if daring me to recoil my, myself. I mean, it was clear to her that I came from outside and that I was a person with means relative to her, um, but it was also interesting because I think she wanted to see whether I had the same opinion of her that in her experience, others did who came from um, more privileged backgrounds. And so that's an instance where um, you can't escape who you are, I guess, you know, i become quite conscious that this is how people see me, that this is how they interact with me. Um, and I think what you have to do as a researcher is simply acknowledge it and recognize it and try to try to incorporate it into your research somehow. And I'm sure there, there are things that I couldn't see that I didn't see um, but, that I missed, but you know you do the best job you can, whatever failings there are, and I'm sure there are a number. In, in my work try to do better next time and, you know you listen to criticisms and and um, the ones that you think that you can do something about you try to do something about and so you know, i don't have a i, I don't have a, a bullet silver bullet answer I, I just i just mean that you know you learn to do better that that's what you do um, and you try to tell the story as faithfully as you can
0: of course right i mean it's it's a work in progress you know yeah. and you know i think one of um, you know, I think in that sense, it's uh, both a strength and a weakness, I think, you know, because I would even argue that it's much more of a strength because, you know, I think once you understand where you come from and you can contextualize it in that sense, I think it adds a lot more power to your research than somebody who is, you know, just reporting the numbers, you know, like what, like somebody has said, right. So, you know, I think it changes person to person and like researcher to researcher. And uh, yeah, so there's... Uh, is that and yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's about it from my end. So thank you for coming on the show, Marco. It was a pleasure talking to you today.
1: It was a pleasure for me to have uh, enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe or follow. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle DTRRH Podcast for further updates.